You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The year is 2001. And do you want to be a wolf? Oh, oh! Or do you want to be a ear wolf? Ew, ew, ew. <laughs> The movie, Training Day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is a podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we are sending them up into outer space. Amy, we are in the middle of our villain series. We have focused on some great villains, and today is no exception. Denzel Washington in Training Day. Uh, Alonzo is somebody that I cannot wait to talk about for the next hour with you. But before we get into that... um, we recently re-released our Grease episode uh, in a way to uh, celebrate the life of Olivia Newton-John, who recently passed. We did. I'm glad we did that. That was one of my favorite conversations you and I have ever had. Because yeah. I felt like I actually really understood the character of Sandy differently. I feel like I've finally grown up enough to understand that movie in a way I didn't understand when I was mad at it for most of my life. Well, I feel like this has been, not to pat ourselves on the back, but one of the best parts of this show is looking at these movies that we have these preconceived notions of and kind of reconfiguring them, looking at them in a different way and challenging each other with it. Because I feel like Grease 2001, even Fatal Attraction, last week's episode, I'm just thinking about it differently. And I'm watching movies a little bit more critically. By the way, uh, I was on the Letterbox podcast recently and I had to pick my top four movies, which is in my bracket. Like everybody who's on Letterbox, which by the way, if you're not on Letterbox, why not? I love it. Are you on Letterbox? You're not, right, Amy? I'm I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. You don't have to review. Yeah. You don't have to put, but you can. A lot of reviewers do put their full reviews in there. I know. David Ehrlich, he's so smart about it. Yeah. 
I love it just because it's social media to me without the connection, right? Like you don't have to comment or like, but you can follow what your friends are watching. And then when you do, uh, you get to get great ideas. Like I, I get inspired when I open my letterbox. Oh, I want to watch that. Oh yeah, that right. And then you can actually read other people's reviews. I don't really take the review part too seriously. I try to do like a sentence review of everything that I've seen. But uh, it was fun talking to the letterbox people. That was fun to talk about my top four, which were a very unique top four. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yeah. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop, Back to the Future, and Ghostbusters. And I picked those because I realized, you know, a lot of people have a highfalutin top four. And I'm not making fun of that highfalutin top four. I think that highfalutin top four is great. Like, you want to put your art film, your foreign film, like show it's the Tinder profile of moviedom. But to me, I was thinking, what are the four movies I've watched the most? It doesn't have to be the most artistic, but the ones that truly bring me a tremendous amount of joy. And those are the movies. I like those picks. Those are adorable. If I had to like just be stuck with them, I would be very happy to be stuck with those movies. Oh, man. I don't know what mine are at all. I feel like the only one that I could say for sure... Even Pennies from Heaven. I mean, yes. Pennies from Heaven. And then maybe The Wizard of Oz. Interesting. I just I like love that. The Wizard of Oz. I just think that, that that movie to me is holistic perfection. I love that. And you know what? Talking about perfection. You know where it's hard to be perfect? In the streets. Oh, in the Can't be streets? perfect in the streets. Not in these You got to get in the streets. You got to smell the streets, Amy. You got to know. And a good movie critic has celluloid in their blood. I know you're chomping down right now (laughs) on some old film reels. And I am excited today because King Kong said, unspool it. The year is 2001. Following the 9-11 attacks, letters containing anthrax spores are mailed to several news media offices and senators, killing five and infecting 17. Timothy McVeigh is executed for the Oklahoma City bombing. Enron files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Apple releases iTunes and the iPod. Wikipedia launches its free online encyclopedia. And Napster is ordered to close down. What a sad day when Napster closed down. But great day for artists. Unspooled films of the year. It's a big one for us. Uh, again, this could be our book, Amy. The Royal Tenenbaums, Shrek, Lagan, The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, and now Training Day. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? Training Day. It is directed by Antoine Fuqua from a screenplay by David Ayer. And it is the story of a former high school football player named Jake Hoyt, played by Ethan Hawke, who became a low-level rookie cop in North Hollywood and now wants to level up as an undercover narcotics officer in Los Angeles proper. To get in good with the new squad, he has to win over Detective Alonzo Harris, that is, of course, Denzel Washington. Only on his first day of training, Hoyt learns very fast that Harris believes that cops have to break a lot of laws in order to enforce laws. And that Harris needs to get a million dollars together by midnight so he does not get killed by the Russian mob. And stealing $60 here and there from the rapist that they stop on the street is not going to cut it. So, take a listen. In the next 24 hours, the only thing more dangerous than the line being crossed. Today's a training day, Officer Hoy. Good chance to give you a little taste of reality. You think you can handle it? Is the cop who has crossed it. I will do anything you want me to do. Will you? We'll see. 
dealer, you'd be dead by now. <laughs> they build jails because of me. Judges have handed out over 15,000 man years of incarceration time based on my investigations. You got today and today only to show me who and what you're made of. You hear me? That's it. That's what I'm talking about. First day on the job, you hit a $3 million seizure. Police officer, get away from the girl! No, 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 we're not racking up arrest today. You let him go, right? Is that I not mean, justice? That's street justice. What's wrong with street justice? Oh, what, just let the animals wipe themselves out. God willing. You can't be like this. Open your eyes, can't you see? Police, we got a search warrant. Man, I didn't sign up for this. You think I'm crazy, right? You got the money. An easy fix. <laughs> you know what you're doing, son. We communicate and talk to me. Say it. I think you're a road cop. Learned a lot of things on these streets, boy. Good things and bad things, too. I'm the police. King Kong ain't got nothing on me. Training Day was supposed to come out on September 21st, 2001, but it was pushed back a week to October 5th, 2001 because of, of course, the World Trade Center attacks. The movie spends a lot of time driving around Los Angeles with the two officers and Alonzo's souped-up Monte Carlo as Alonzo tries to convince Jake and the audience, too, if he can, that they should side with him on his view of the law. Alonzo's conversations are manipulative and flattering and full of micro-tests of compliance. And throughout the movie, Jake is confused, and Denzel is so compelling and charismatic that Denzel wins a lot of their arguments, just like he won himself his second Oscar for the role. You could say that the push-pull dynamic between the two cops overlaps just a little bit with the number one song on the radio, a song about having strong emotions towards a person that leaves you feeling all sorts of scrambled. It's Fallen by Alicia Keys. Sometimes I love you Sometimes you make me blue Sometimes I feel good At times I feel used Loving you, darling Oh, I like that song. I haven't heard that in a bit. Yeah, that was number one for a really long time. Even if it came out when it was supposed to come out, it would have been number one already. You know, Amy, thinking about this movie... I think I had a realization about it that is a little uncommon because I'm coming in here so excited to watch Denzel Washington. I remember this being a great Denzel Washington movie. I've watched this movie multiple times. As a matter of fact, before we recorded this podcast, I watched it twice in a row because June started watching it with me at like the last 15 minutes And then she's like, can you start it from the beginning? And then we just went through and watched it all again. So I did watch it back to back, which was an interesting way to watch this movie. But I think what I truly realized about this movie was how good Ethan Hawke is. And I'm going to walk that out a little bit further and go, how good Ethan Hawke has been for his whole career. I'm like, he's a really underrated, great actor who has been doing like just beautiful, amazing work for such a long time. Because we've danced around whether or not we're ever going to do the Richard Linklater before, after Sunrise films, which we will do at one point. But even from, yeah, even from then, I think I always have this vision of him from Reality Bites. And I remember the story that Ben Stiller told of him where he's like, oh yeah, sometimes I, you know, I'm directing this movie and I'm like, hey, uh, you got to wake up, buddy. You got to wake up. We're shooting a movie here. And I always thought of Ethan Hawke as like this, like, uh, not stoner, but like this 
kind of I don't care about acting pretty boy guy. And I just don't think I put it all together how great he has been lately and how long he has been picking interesting parts and really fantastic roles. And I was surprised to learn that he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in this. And I think it's really well-deserved. I know we're going to talk about Denzel Washington a lot, but I just wanted to kind of talk about this performance here because I do think that this movie is truly anchored by Ethan Hawke. He's playing so much. They both are playing so many levels, but I just wanted to talk about Ethan Hawke for just a second. I mean, Ethan Hawke. I am a girl who Dead Poet Society was like, one of my favorite movies that I had ever seen uh, when I was a little kid. So like even Hawk has always loomed huge to me, but your impression of him is, is not wrong, which is, I find like this continual kind of refreshing of the, of Ethan Hawk people being like, right. He's amazing. He's amazing. He's amazing. I mean, I even love him in reality bites because I think he captures that way of being like, a sleaze bag that you shouldn't really love, but you are going to fall in love with him anyways. And the movie lets him exist in that space forever, which is a kind of character I love seeing on screen. Like Lena Dunham does it really good. And I think Ben Stiller does it really good with Ethan Hawke in that too. But yeah, like at this point when he does training day, he's in a really weird position in his career. Like he was saying that at the time, that at this moment, like in the late uh, 90s, early 2000s, it was the first time that he felt, quote unquote, washed up. Like in his words, what he was said is like, I was kind of famous. So people are like, oh, no, I know him and not him when they when he was right. looking for roles. And he said at the same time, there was this whole crop of actors that had just graduated college. They're 28, 29. And he was really envious of these people because he felt like they were fully formed. And he had just come up as a child actor, you know, going back all the way to his youth and that he had been like, as he put it, you know, pushed around by the quote machinations of corporate America and the Hollywood movie industry. And he was passe. He felt like he had spent so much of his life in the public eye that he looked kind of lame. Or as he put it, I was that kid from Dead Poets Society that didn't really amount to much. Yeah, but at the same time, he's a guy coming out of NYU acting school. Like he goes to college. He's not just a child actor who just like, I'm on a sitcom and now I'm, you know, now I'm doing this. Like, you know, he is studying with the greats. I had a friend who yeah. actually went to school with him and Uma Thurman, and they truly, like, he didn't give up on his art. Like, I feel like he went to school. Oh, he no, went, never. yeah. Like, yeah, he, like, so no, I, he formed I think, a theater company. He was a really strong theater actor in the 90s. Like, that's part of why he's been in these Jason Blum horror films, is like, they formed like a theater company together where they all knew each other in the 90s. And like, he really, rose up out of that. Like he has, he's kind of one of those actors who considered himself such a serious actor when he was like young and in his twenties that everybody was like, you're taking yourself too seriously. You're just some guy. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I think there is an energy to that kind of crop of NYU actors, right? Like I think they didn't have this Steppenwolf, like I'm a, they, they were like the intensity of Steppenwolf, but with the youth of like heartthrobs, right? You know, which is sort of, you know, uh, yeah. I think a tricky place to be in. And I think as it's age It's a combo is shown, that people don't want to take seriously because they're like, yeah. the more they're trying to be taken seriously as not heartthrobs, people are like, your energy is too much. I don't like it. And I do think that he gets lucky here too, because I didn't know about this until I was researching it. But, you know, Tobey Maguire 
was supposed to be this character. So much so that he like went undercover with narcotics officers in Los Angeles for two months. He gained weight and he was dropped from the, the movie when Ethan Hawke, who was Fuqua's first choice, was available. Like, oh, actually, we're switching it. Like, and that is, a, I mean, a bummer for Tobey Maguire, but Tobey Maguire, obviously, I could see him in this part, but great for Ethan Hawke, because I think Ethan Hawke, there's something about him in this movie. I know he's getting, like, rumpled and beat down throughout, but there's something about him that is really clean and naive at points that I don't even know you would get with Tobey Maguire at that point where Tobey Maguire is in 2001. I'm not no, there's sure. Something, there's something in Ethan Hawke's eye that I think is idealistic, mm-hmm. but also, you know, he wants that promotion. Like, he's willing to bend a little bit when he thinks it'll help him. I think there's something also kind of shady in his face, a little desperate. Yes. That I like about this character. I mean, and yeah, they looked at a ton of people for this part. They also looked at like Ryan Felipe, Freddie Prince Jr. Because it was, Eminem. of course, like the late night. Eminem, Paul Walker. Eminem would have been interesting. I think he like wound up deciding to do 8 Mile instead. Yes. But like. Eminem would have been interesting, but I think you want that wide-eyed thing, right? Like you want, you want him to come from. Like, there's a moment of desperation in his eyes that I love. It's the moment when uh, they're on their first kind of ride-along section of the movie where he's forced to smoke pot, right? To be truly effective, a good narcotics agent must know and love narcotics. In fact, a good narcotics agent should have narcotics in his blood. (laughs) What, are you going to smoke that? Nope, you are. Hell if I am. Yeah. Yeah. You're not? No. Why, you're Mormon or something? You're Jesus freak? No, nah, man, I'm not losing my job. This is your job. I can't do that. Smoke it. No. This ain't a test. Just take a hit. Take a no, hit. No, man, listen, I became a cop to stop people. Yeah, 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 blah, 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 blah. It's not a review board and it ain't cocaine. Take a hit. No, man. Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. If I was a dealer, you'd be dead by now, motherfucker. You turn shit down on the street, and the chief brings your wife a crisply folded flag. The fuck is wrong with you? What are you talking about? You know what? I don't want you in my union. I don't want you in my division. Get the fuck out of my car. Go back to the valley, rookie. And in that moment, I think a moment after that, you know, he, he looks at Denzel Washington. He goes, I- I'll do whatever you want me to do. And that desperation, because you see it, it's like that one opening scene where he gets up, he's nervous to go to work, you know the stakes of the day, he wants to get on this force, he wants to become detective, he wears it all on his sleeve. Like, why do you want to be in narcotics? I want to be a detective. But you see the desperation to claw out from being this uh, lower level cop, just a, you know, a regular, you know, pull him over on the side of the road cop. And I And I feel like, that was re- like that desperation reads really well with him. Like that, you see him drop into that, and I think before you see him affected by drugs and alcohol and just the mind fuckery of the day, because this is the definition of a toxic relationship. He's trying to hold on to anything, and it's just you know the formation of the rock is changing under his you know hands. Yeah, but there is something that you see before any of that happens of him trying to make it work, of him trying, you know, not even putting his foot in his mouth, like 
Denzel Washington is forcing him to put his foot in his mouth. He doesn't realize it, but like he's creating a vibe that he's so off kilter and you really, you really see it with him. Oh yeah. I mean, from their very first like sit down conversation in the diner, what you hear in it is Denzel taking every single sentence that Ethan Hawke says and figuring out why it's wrong. Right. Like every single sentence, every single sentence that Ethan Hawke says, trying to get him to like him, trying to do what he wants, trying to get on his side. Denzel is just asserting his power by being like, no, no, don't say no, not your story, a story, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you just, it like freaks me out hearing it because it is such like a complete level of like control. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story, a story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now, go. Well, there was a DUI stop. A DUI stop? Whoa, let me load up my guns. <laughs> a DUI? Oh, shit. Well, I, listen, all right, it's good. We were on Midwatch. Oh, we, and, oh uh, me and Debbie. Who's Debbie? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Debbie Maxwell, my training officer. You had a female training officer? Yes, sir. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> so what was she, black, white? She was white. <laughs> uh-huh. Liquor license? A what? A lick her license. Was she a dyke, a lesbian? you like to watch new stuff right well go to hulu and see what's new because hulu has new stuff all the time Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. When you watch that scene the first time, you're watching Denzel Washington. And he is, this movie is a masterclass. Like, he is fucking phenomenal. Like, nothing is off on him. I have a theory or two about something funny plot-wise later on. But from an acting standpoint, it is a fucking flawless, flawless performance. He's so dominant. That how do you play against that, right? And, like, and when you watch, Ethan Hawke is like 
he is just as alive and in, as important in that scene. It's like, and it's the the not showy version of it. When you watch it, like, holy shit, like he's doing just as much. It's just not as flashy. Yeah. And 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 it's and not to say that that's wrong. He's playing it a hundred percent right. But watching him in the pocket there allows Denzel Washington to like ride him up and down because when he gets excited to tell the story about the DUI and and brag about how he stopped a murder, like he like you see that bravado, but you also see the scared kid. It it's it, I mean there there are two of them. It's yeah. truly you know, I think I, I, I really think about yeah. that. He has to be compellingly browbeaten. That is yes. like that's almost an the oxymoron, whole right? Yeah. But he has to be like magnetically defeated at every turn. I mean, that's hard. And I think you see in him like a little bit of the life came easy for him for a long time as a football star. Mm-hmm. You know, as a football star, you know, notable enough that people knew about him through the radio. And then you know you see. The hunger, the competition is I, and I I feel like kind of what you see is Ethan Hawke himself at this point of his career, like we're talking about, because yeah, this was a role he had to test for. It wasn't handed to him. He had to earn this role. It was like really needing to level up. And he talked once about like how bad his audition went to him. He went into this room to test against Denzel and- Holy shit, scary. He was already kind of freaked out wanting this job, like wanting to make sure he was leveling up outside of people thinking of him as like the slacker Gen X like emblem, basically. It's Yeah, it's, he kind of got typecast as like the Gen X slacker guy, almost in the way that we did that to like Jed Nelson with the Brat Pack. Right. You know, there's somebody who exemplifies a moment and an era and a bit of youth so much that we kind of don't want to let them be anything else because well, they are that. I would argue that Ethan Hawke was like a Molly Ringwald, you know, but I would argue that that is and I go back to it's a whole other conversation. I think Ben Stiller's a great director. Obviously, uh, you know, right now he's in this moment with Severance and he's done Escape from Demoria. But I'll stick up for Walter Mitty, man. I think that movie is beautiful. I do, too. I just think that Reality Bites captured something. I mean, I love Cable Guy as well. But Reality Bites captured a moment at the right time that for the people living through that moment, I don't know if it works now, like Singles. I don't know if Singles is as good as when I saw it uh, originally, the Camera Crow movie. But I've that, never seen Singles. But oh, I, I love Reality it. Bites. I love Singles. But, uh, but in that movie, it was so kind of iconic that it is... It's a zeitgeist movie that identified him with the zeitgeist, right? Like he yeah, became, for sure. and it, it is, it's so tricky because that's a, that's a hard thing. It's like, it's a great performance. And it's sort of like when you look back at Brad Pitt in True Romance, doing the stoner in that, you know, he's so not that, that you look back and go, oh my God, that's so cool that he did that. Um, or he was so not that in what he did afterwards. I don't know. It's interesting. Like he, but I think Ethan Hawke, that stink stayed on him in a way that really, truly, until right now, when having this conversation about this movie, I'm like, oh, I didn't put it all together. I look forward to Ethan Hawke movies. I'm like, everything he does is pretty fun and cool and different and weird. I mean, I admire him a ton as an actor because I think he's one of the people who does what I really respect among talented people who have the clout to do it. I think he uses his. He uses the power of his name to get cool stuff greenlit. 
Mm-hmm. And I think he's just, I think he enjoys the work and, and the yeah. craft like so much that I think he makes great choices. I just, I love all of his choices. But yeah, so he like shows up here to do this audition against Denzel and he sits down and he's like learned his lines and Denzel starts doing the scene, but not doing the scene. He doesn't do anything that's actually been written Whoa. on this page because he's trying to test and see if Ethan Hawke really is a theater actor. Because, you know, Denzel's a theater guy. He wants to do this theater style. He wants to make it somebody who can, like, improv with him, somebody who can play around, somebody who can keep these scenes alive. So he deliberately, without preparing Ethan Hawke, makes him improvise this whole scene that he has been practicing for this test. And Ethan Hawke tries his best, leaves, and is like, I feel like I've been sabotaged. He thought about like going back in and telling them to go to hell because he felt like they had tricked him almost. And as he's outside being mad and sulking, he gets a call from his agent being like, they love you. They want you. They want you to do this part. And he was like, oh, whoa. He, he had so do you not think it thought captured that it had felt him? that good in the room. Because there's a, there's a thing that Fuqua said about this film. And he's like, the first scene they shot was the diner scene, which is like the second scene of the movie. And... He goes, that is Denzel being Denzel and Ethan Hawke being Ethan Hawke. And I believe there's some truth to that. I'm not saying that that's them not acting, but it's almost them in the pocket of what they can do. Because we talked about this in the very beginning of the show. Uh, What's a memeable movie, right? This movie is a memeable movie because I think everyone goes, we've seen it at award shows, we've seen it for years, for 12 years. Like, King Kong's got nothing on me. Like, everyone loves that line. When you watch that in the movie, it's so not, like, as remembered. Like, I was like, oh, that's it's a pretty subtle, like, it's it's a defeated moment. It's a interesting moment. But it's not like the defining line of the movie or the defining performance or the scariest or the most badass that Denzel is. He's much more badass in that movie. It's a great line, but it's not even delivered in a way that I remembered it or the way it's kind of built up in culture. So Yeah, it's I, almost offhand because it like happens in yeah. a scene where he's like where he's like trying to assert and pretend that he still has power when even us in the audience are being like, maybe he doesn't. Yeah, well, it's a great, yeah, there's something great about that moment when he's breaking down. and But I, I wonder if at their natural states, at both of their natural states, there, there is a, a strong streak of these two characters in them. I mean, you know, have you like, ever listened to like a Denzel Washington interview? Yeah, it like, scares me and I'm not even in the yeah. room. Yeah, he... He figures out a way to declare every question he gets asked wrong. You know, yes. like he yes. he takes control of every question just the way this character does here. And I've, I've never interviewed him. I've just listened to interviews of him. But I have interviewed Ethan Hawke and he's exactly the opposite. He's lovely. He's very nice. He wants to have a great conversation. He wants to be there. So he is that nice guy. Well, I mean, look. Denzel Washington, we're saying his name a million times. Like, didn't he also, when he was on Graham Norton, go, that's actually not pronounced Denzel, it's Denzel. And you're like, oh, gotcha. Now, is he fucking with Graham Norton? I have no no clue. Or is he like, that's, people have mispronounced my name the entire time, and that, I'm just telling you, like, he carries himself with an air of, I don't suffer fools. I had a friend who worked with him, And he was like, it was the most intimidating experience you could possibly imagine. But he is an amazing actor and will give 
you everything that you need, but no small talk. And I get that. Like, I get, like, like he is there to do his job. He is a fucking pro. And maybe that's his way that he acts. Maybe he's in the moment. I know they did a lot of rehearsal for Macbeth, the recent film that just came out, like, where they're switching roles. And I just think that he is... You get that vibe from certain people. I don't suffer fools. And that's, and that's I think, that's at the core of who Denzel Washington is. I think it's true. I heard, actually, uh, Terry Gross asked him about the name pronunciation thing. Mm-hmm. And the story that he told was that the, fam- the name showed up in his family because the doctor who delivered, I think it was his dad, was named Denzel. And so they named I think uh, I, I'm getting the story a little bit wrong, but I think they named his dad Denzel after the doctor. But then when they named him Denzel as well, it got confusing in the house. So they started pronouncing his name Denzel so that they could tell them apart. It was oh. something like that. It was something very complicated where like it had been pronounced one way, but then they switched it. But it is nice because it gives him the opportunity to tell anybody he wants to that they're doing it wrong. Uh, well, of course, no it matter just gives what they them the, upper, the upper hand. And I think, you know, he is an actor, Denzel, who truly is one of the biggest stars that we have, like one of the biggest movie stars. And, you know, he, for the most part, doesn't miss, you know, and he can do things with, you know, Tony Scott and they are equally great and he can do things with the Coens and he's great or Cohen, you know, he can kind of move around in a bunch of different worlds. And he is someone who I think brings like a level of like gravitas to every role. Well, I think then what was so surprising when I was going back and reading articles about Training Day from when it came out from like 2001 was how much every journalist was flipping out and asking him about the fact that he was playing a villain for the first Mm. time. Which maybe is part of the power of this movie. Like, here we are talking about, like, villains and what makes a villain. In this one, when the movie hit, it was that you're seeing Denzel Washington, who had always played, like, good, heroic roles. Roles where, like, at least there was a lot of, like, quality and depth and heart and integrity to them. Now being the villain, like, taking all of that goodwill that he had mustered throughout his career and applying that charisma towards somebody that you want to believe is telling you the truth Because this whole movie is him just taking things you agree with and trying to make you agree with him. And I think because it's it's Denzel, a guy that like you've always looked up to on screen saying these things, it's almost in the audience like you're desperate to try to agree with him. Like in this scene right here. Turn, dust, BCP, primos, P-Dog. That's what you had. That's what you were smoking. You couldn't taste it. No, I've never done it. You have now. I haven't, but you have. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Man, I'm going to get piss tested and I'm going to get fired. Lieutenant's got our back. We know a week before we piss. Oh, shit. Shit. Oh. Why did you do this to me? Uh, you're an adult, man. Shit. Nobody told you to smoke that. Made the decision, live with your decision. Like I put a gun to your head. (laughs) 
And mind you, in that scene where he's yelling at Ethan Hawke and being like, you're an adult man, nobody held a gun to your head. He held a gun to his head. We saw it. But he's telling us with such conviction that nobody is arguing with him, including Ethan Hawke. Well, this is what I think is kind of fascinating. I love that that moment as well, because this entire movie is basically a two-person scene, right? They're just going from place to place to place. Occasionally, they interact with another character, but it really is watching the two of them. And it is this relationship of mentally mind-fucking, you know, Ethan Hawke and, and him kind of getting over it and realizing how to get over it. But I think only someone like Denzel Washington could play this part. And I know they talked to, again, a lot of people. This is a movie that probably was sitting around, a script that was sitting around, and, you know, whether it was, uh, you know... Samuel Jackson. Yeah, Bruce Willis. Nick Nolte. A wide selection uh, of people. Gary Sinise, Tom Sizemore, right? Uh, I think you want someone like him because what he has, what he has in his charisma is what I think most people with cultish, devoted following have, right? This ability to say anything and make it sound truthful. Now, whether or not you want to say that that's something about like talk show hosts, like a, like a, uh, Tucker Carlson, or you want to say something like, that's also like what I think Donald Trump is able to do. Like, I'm just going to say this thing and you know I'm lying, but I'm saying it with such conviction that I'm, I'm, he's gaslighting, right? And it's like, and I think some of the best people who can keep you on your toes or cult-like or following something are people who can effectively gaslight you. And I'm not saying that he played characters that were good at gaslighting, but I'm saying he played powerful characters. So like when you talk about the actor who played Malcolm X and what he said, we are like, I'm like, it's like he's using all the charms that he did. Crimson Tide, you know, all these, like all the things that he did for being the right guy. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to say what I felt. I'm going to tell you what is right. Pelican brief, whatever it is. Um, He's using that for evil. And that is the tricky thing. Like only he could play this part so effectively. It becomes a different movie. I think if it's not Denzel Washington, we don't like this character right away or we don't like him sooner. Right. But here it's like, I think we struggled throughout this entire movie going, I think he's kind of right. Is he right? Like only, does he only cross the line or when he really starts to cross the line, I think is when he kills Scott Glenn. At that point we have to go like, okay, he's crossed a line, right? Like, oh, I get from, I work the streets. You got to do the streets in a certain way. Like you you can buy it. Like we are Ethan Hawke. We're following along for a while before we go, all right, he's definitely bad. But if you saw, you know, if you saw Bruce Willis doing that to Snoop Dogg, making him, you know, puke up, you know, crack, you'd be like, fuck this guy. He's a, he's a police brutality. Like it comes, but he carries himself with such like a position of power that you actually buy into his bullshit. And I think that that is the, that's one of the reasons why this movie works so well is because he has that, that thing, that very hard to parse thing, but why people follow others. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because last week we were talking about a villain who's really good at getting people to buy their bullshit, Robert Mitchum. Because he like walks around quoting the Bible and we see like the people that he does his scenes with wanting to believe his bullshit so badly and giving into it. But the audience doesn't, 
you know, the audience is like, no, this is a bad dude. This is a bad, bad, crazy dude. Like we're given enough information about him. There's enough in the way that he plays the character that I don't think you ever watch Night of the Hunter and you're like, yeah, he's got a point. I'm into Robert Mitchum. Totally. Right. But but this is different. This is manipulation towards the audience for sure. And like the movie invites that. I think the movie invites conflict inside the audience. And 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 Denzel has said like that wasn't even totally there in the first script. Like when he first read the script, he thought that the Alonzo character was sort of one-dimensional, just kind of drunk, just kind of slobby. And he and Fuqua really worked on making him seem more manipulative. But I think it is also why, and Denzel hasn't talked about this too much, but Ethan Hawke has mentioned it, that like when they were shooting this movie, the NAACP came to the set and they went up to Denzel and they're like, what are you doing? They didn't want him to play this role. And Denzel tried to argue back against the NAACP. He told them, this is what Hawk quotes him as saying, Al Pacino can play a bad guy. Gene Hackman can play a bad guy. I can't play a bad guy. I'm an artist. This is how I lead, not by being some dubious role model who only plays squeaky clean people. I'll be a role model by being great at my job. But he was under this pressure. Well, we talked about this when we talked about Sidney Poitier, right? Like, can Mm -hmm. you play, like, you are... I think as, and again, this is always tricky for me to talk about because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, a person of color. But I think when you are a black actor, there's certain traps that you can fall into by the way that, you know, the roles that people will put you in and how they want to elevate you. I think we've opened our eyes to this lately. But I think for him to be a bad guy, it was almost like, wait, wait, we don't hold on. Like it, it does become not a betrayal, but like a. But you're not, we don't classify you as that kind of, it's, it, it is a, a level of like racism, obviously, but it's also like this really interesting moment that he could play this, but even in playing it, it was still risky for him to play this. It was still like, well, can we like you in the next movie then? You know, I don't know. It, it's a very like, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by it. Again, I can't really speak to it probably as full-throated as someone who's experienced it, but it you know it it shows that uh, an actor at the height of his career or at this moment where he is a blockbuster star this is something that is scary to people we can't show you in a bad light and that's really interesting and confining as an actor yeah very much this also came up when we were talking about gone with the wind you know and, and in my conversation with like hattie mcdaniel's descendant you know cuz hattie mcdaniel was pretty open that she felt like she was caught in an impossible position between the NAACP not wanting her to play servants, but Hollywood not wanting to cast her as anything else. She was like, I'm not light-skinned. I'm not conventionally beautiful. They're not going to cast me as a love interest or as, like, really any other character. So are you saying I don't work? What are you saying I do? And that dilemma that she was really put in is, it feels unwinnable, to be honest. You know, it feels like the only way out is through if it's a role like Denzel gets where you win an Oscar doing it. You're like, look, I won the Oscar. And and the irony actually is like when he won his Oscar, he won it on the same night that Sidney Poitier won an honorary Oscar. And so he acknowledged this. He acknowledged this whole kind of history. Two birds with one night, huh? (laughs) Oh, God is good. God is great. God is great. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you all. 40 years I've been chasing Sydney. They finally give it to me. What they do? They give it to him the same night. 
I'll always be chasing you, Sydney. I'll always be following in your footsteps. There's nothing I would rather do, sir. Nothing I would rather do. God bless you. God bless you. Oh, that's great. But yeah, but think about what that meant. It's like Sydney getting the Oscar for his body of work. And also Denzel getting awarded for an award he not only like certainly deserves in this performance, but like helping to break out his own career from a box that he felt like he was put in. A similar box to the one Sydney was put in. And I think that, that those moments open up doors for people to break the mold that Hollywood puts them in or how they can be seen in different ways. I mean, you know, Denzel Washington doing this part is is probably going to be one of his most iconic roles. I mean, he himself has said this is one of my favorite performances. This is one of my one of the ones that he will be remembered by, right? And whether it is the King Kong line or or whatever else, I think there is something about a bad character. We're talking about villains a lot. And what makes a good villain? And this is to me the first time we've seen a villain that we like in this series. And I'll go and say Anthony Hopkins is that in Silence of the Lambs. And we've seen that in other movies that we've talked about. But this idea of a charismatic villain that we we lean into, that you want to give more leeway to. I mean, at least that's the way I feel with it. What about you? When you watch him here, like, when do you start to feel like he's a bad guy? Well, you know what? This is this is hard because it's partially, I mean, I have to admit, like, it's hard to watch this movie not knowing that he is going to be the villain. But also, watching that first coffee conversation, just, you know, as a, as a girl living through the world who has been on dates, like that, the way that conversation went down is just so controlling and so red flaggy that it does immediately like freak me out completely. Mm -hmm. Like you can't eat, you can't eat. I'm paying the bill. No, you're paying the bill. Like he doesn't mean anything he says. There's this book. Oh, I'm just going to give it a shout out now because I love it so much. When I moved to LA, this woman at the LA Weekly, because I was like an intern there at the time, she gave me a copy of a book called The Gift of Fear, which is just all about noticing red flags and controlling behavior. And that book just like changed my life. And then also reading that Neil Strauss book, The Game, that taught oh, people yeah. how to use controlling behavior. It was like reading those two things was almost like studying a, a manual of how tigers hunt and kill. You know, I was like, okay, I understand your the weapons now. And it's made me really on edge about it. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if there is a difference between like male viewers and female viewers watching that scene where female viewers are like, oh, I've been on a date with this guy. This is bad news immediately. I've had this breakfast. This is bad news. I have to run. And guys haven't been on dates like that. I think that's probably way too reductive. I'm just throwing it No, I, I think the way that I look at it is he's selling you his line of bullshit, Right. We know that he runs an elite squad. He has his choice of whoever he wants to work for him. He is weeding out people that he feels aren't worthy of this position. And at the same time, you believe him as being good. Like there's a line pretty much like third or fourth scene in the film where he's like, my arrest record shows because Ethan Hawke calls him out on it. You're doing yeah. bad. You're, you're a bad cop or you're, you know, I'm in this not to do this. And he's like, 
my arrest record, my jail time proves that I am. And that, I think, is the debate of the movie. Uh, because I think you can agree with certain things. Like, do you want to waste time booking the two crackheads, putting them in jail, loading up the system? Or do you want to get the real, the big fish? Do you want to make the big the big difference? And I right. think that's how he keeps on positioning it. And I think as an audience member, that is where I go, yeah, okay, I see it. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Now, we are also in a world, and I think we have to call this out a little bit. This movie is uh, post-Rodney King, uh, and I believe a running parallel to the LAPD's uh, Rampart scandal, which, by the way, Denzel Washington's character is loosely based on this other police officer, uh, Rafael Perez, who was one of these very dirty cops. And this Rampart scandal was just, you know... 70 officers in the Rampart Division of L.A. were misconduct from bad shootings, alcohol on duty. Like, these were all things that they were doing. Yeah, kind of the backstory here is, like, that David Iyer wrote this screenplay, like, in 1996 before Rampart came out, before people knew what was going on. Uh, and when he took it around to production companies, they're all like, cops would never do this. This isn't how cops are. And everybody just said no. They thought it was like a completely improbable thing. And then the Rampart story started to break. And then they're like, oh, wait. Oh, not only is this maybe true, it's like topical. And and yeah, like the character that Denzel Washington based his character on, uh, Rafael Perez, uh, a few things about him. Like, he was an officer with this unit that they had created called CRASH, which stands for Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, that was a lot like this. It was a task force where they gave you a lot of leeway to do what it took to get the job done, basically. And among the things that he did, like, he uh, shot an unarmed man and then paralyzed him and then framed him for the shooting. So the man that he paralyzed was sentenced to prison for, like, years. Um he stole six pounds of Coke uh, to frame a cop that he didn't like and then, like, decided instead to sell the Coke, the Coke for, like, $800,000. Um, he is accused of murdering the notorious B.I.G. Uh, at the request of Suge Knight, mm -hmm. uh, which is, like, a case that has been kind of going back and forth, put into civil trial, blah, 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 blah. 
Uh, and then when he was finally arrested, he pointed the finger at the 70 other cops. He kind of ratted everybody out. And he also pointed the finger at cops who then maybe turned out to be innocent. So he was just also pointing the finger still at people he didn't like, trying to get revenge. And then when he finally got out of prison, like first he did like three years in Tehachapi for the coke thing. And then he did two more years for the shooting, um, for shooting the, the unarmed man. And then when he got out, he got hired in like the you know, 2014, 15, there's video of this. He got hired by Harvey Weinstein to be the family's driver. And wow. so he was driving around the Weinsteins in a big uh, SUV for a while. Interesting, interesting hiring. I will say that. But also the fallout of the Rampart scandal, the fallout of Rafael Perez is like those criminal convictions that you're hearing about, you know, in this movie that he would, that Rafael Perez himself would brag about, a hundred of them got overturned. They got reversed because he wasn't wow. doing it legitimately. But when you look at pictures of him next to Denzel Washington, you really see the resemblance. He grew a beard and the kind of goatee to look exactly like him. He has the exact same facial hair. Oh, and one last little Easter egg is if you look at the license plate of the car, the Monte Carlo, it's ORP 967. That stands for Officer Rafael Perez, who was born in 1967. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And I think there's something really interesting at play here too because it's hard to watch this movie after especially being in LA where this giant scandal happens with the Rampart division and we Rodney King and now we've also I think as a country have opened our eyes even wider to issues of police brutality but in watching this movie I think if you put a white man in the role of this cop the movie takes a whole different turn. I think there's something interesting about it being a person of color, kind of leading the charge here too, that I think makes the movie a little bit more thorny because he's doing all these things that we associate with police brutality, but he's also preaching this idea of, you know, the ends justify the means, right? Like that's that's kind of the the thesis of it, right? The ends justify the means. If we want to bring down the big fish, we got to go out deeper in the water. And then what that then becomes is, you know, if you, you can only, um, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove, right? And it becomes this other, other part of it, it becomes a little bit more sticky, right? Cause it's like, okay, well, if we keep this a little bit more hidden, it's like there are two agendas kind of working together, which is, I think, this idea of, I don't know, I think where we're wrestling with, and I think where there's been a lot of talk about police brutality. I think that, the, you know, I think that the, some people will be like, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove and can act in a certain way and 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 have now been held accountable because of cameras and because of uh, eyewitness uh, videos. And then there are other people who are just, you know, trying to do the job, trying to do the job and do it the right way. It's a it's a tricky line because I believe that we're also watching Alonzo Harris on a very specific day. This is not him solving a case. I think he is solving cases. I think he's doing this. Like, this is the day where he's trying to save his ass. Now, I will say, plot-wise, this is muddy. Like, this idea, and I we can get into it a little bit um, now, if you want, but like the plot of this movie, like we 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 hear it in the beginning with Scott Glenn, you got some problems with Russians, and then there's like this little middle chunk, kind of in the before like the last 
30, 40 minutes of the movie where it's like all the plot just kind of comes together really quick. It's like, okay, we're going to go see these three wise men. They're going to give us the approval to go over here. But it's like, it's jammed in there. And I almost think that it's hard to follow. I, f- I found it a little bit hard to follow in rewatching. I was like, wow, this is a little muddy what he's trying to do. And I guess he just, and just for the pullback of going, it was a plan all along. Like, oh, that's all we wanted to do is plan it all along. We need to go visit Scott Glenn to make sure he's going to be home later in the day to make sure when I fucking take all of his money, he'll be there. Like, there's a lot of. I needed it to be this rookie so I could set up a guy that I didn't really know. And yeah. This, that's why it happens to be his first day on the job. And yeah. And I yeah. think that like this movie is an indicative of Alonzo Harris's like MO. This is like, he's, he's struggling as much as Ethan Hawke wants to be in the narcotics unit and is desperate. Alonzo is desperate hiding it behind this other thing. And that's what I think makes his ending monologue in the street so powerful because you see the, for the first time, these moments of bravado is masking his, complete fear that he's going to be killed. He, he fucked up. He fucked up and he is desperate and he is running hard on this day and he's making a lot of mistakes. So I, anyway, I just want to say like, I think that that's maybe the balance that this movie has, which is like on this day, he is bad and doing a lot of bad things. But maybe if you watch him on another day, you'd be like, oh, I, I actually, ju- I believe that the ends justify the means. I don't know. There's a lot. It's a, it's a thorny movie in that way because if you look at it just from the lens of police brutality, absolutely. It, this movie, like from pulling over the high school kids or the college kids on the side of the road, from there on, he is a brutal police officer. But then you look at it from what he's trying to get to. I don't know. I, I'm wrestling with it. It's somebody who I think is involved in these conversations in the real world. I'm like, oh, I see both sides of it. I, I wrestle with that. I mean, first I want to say, I think it's really funny that they picked kind of the olive green new Volkswagen bug as the symbol of these kids are giant nerds. In a movie uh, that is very specific about what a yes. cool car is and isn't, that they picked out that bug to be like, these kids, who needs them? But it does make me wonder why those kids were buying PCP. To me, that's one of my things I'm like a little bit hung up on. I'm like, those kids were buying PCP? Weren't they coded as being like innocent geeks who just had shitty weed? Wasn't that whole, the whole point of the scene that he was shaking down these kids for no reason just to throw his weight around? I, I get scrambled there. Like, right. Then where did the PCP come from? Those don't look like those kids don't look like they're doing PCP. And well, in the they could have bought like to me. What I think is they may have bought something that was laced with PCP and he knew it. So that's why he was stick. He was staking out there because he knows that that guy laces his shit with PCP. But you never know. College kids, they might get into. I mean, I love when he said his mom gave him that. That pipe is mom. Again, that story. <laughs> uh, California moms. Um, but what I find interesting is like the little ways through the movie that Antoine Fuqua just shows us how high Alonzo is on his own power, regardless. Like when he pulls over the car to yell at Ethan Hawk to do the drugs. He pulls over in the middle of an intersection, just the middle of the intersection, right. blocking the traffic for literally everybody. Pulls a gun on a, on, on yeah. a, without even we're putting sirens on. Like, it's just like a black car in the middle of the road. Like, to anyone yeah. looking at that, that is not a cop car. Yeah. No, and the staging of that is just so tense. Or the way that even in that scene where he's like, you know, you got to be the wolf. You got to overlook some things. Do you really want those guys on the street? I don't know where they are. You let them go. <laughs> Oh, I let him go. Yeah, you let him go. Hey, man, you want to run a gun, man? Stay in patrol, okay? This is investigations, all right? 
Let the garbage men handle the garbage. We're professional anglers, okay? We go after the big fish. Chasing them monkey strong, crackhead motherfuckers anyway. You know they'd have killed you without yeah, hesitating. That's why they belong in prison. For what? They got beat down, they lost their rock, they lost their money. The message from Hillside probably gonna smoke them. I mean, Jesus, what more you want? I want justice. Is right? that not justice? That's street justice. What's wrong with street justice? Oh, just let the animals wipe themselves out. God right? willing. Fuck them. Everybody who looks like them. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. The good guys, they die first, right? Those school kids and moms, family men, they don't want to catch the straight bullets in the noodle. To protect the sheep, you got to catch the wolf. And it takes a wolf to catch a wolf, you understand? What? I said you protect the sheep by killing you. the motherfucking wolves. No, you didn't hear me. You listening, but you didn't hear me. Yeah, all right, whatever. Yeah, whatever, whatever the fuck ever. He's leaving out stuff. He's leaving out that teenage girl who was getting raped. He's leaving out that. He doesn't care about that part about it. So you see through the the lens of what he does concern himself with and what he doesn't concern himself with. And you know that he's not concerning himself with public safety at all. Right. And that's what Ethan Hawke, he's like, I am here to protect. Like, it's the wolf and the sheep, right? Like, that's the idea. Like, that keeps on coming back through the whole movie. You know, what do you, you want to protect the sheep? You got to kill this wolf, you know? And like... And I think it is, it's a tricky kind of debate because he's clearly acting above the law at every single position. But I think what he does really well is instead of being a brute about it, he's an intellect about it. And I think that's what makes a villain really interesting. Like, it's just not that he's beating someone up. Like, there's a great moment in True Romance where... Um, James Gandolfini has this like monologue about what it's like to kill somebody for the first time, right? And and in that monologue, it kind of like takes away the brute of him and shows an intellect. I don't know why I'm thinking of that scene. There's probably a million better examples. I mean, clearly Hannibal Lecter is a perfect example too. But like this idea that you can rationalize bad behavior. And that's what I think a lot of people do. And I think... A villain who can easily rationalize, I mean, clearly it's a James Bond trope, uh, is a more engaging villain because it's like, well, maybe that is right. Maybe we are right. It gets people to, it says the way that you think about the world is wrong. I'm not wrong. And I think that that makes for a much more compelling villain than just a straight up bad guy. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, if he was just an abusive cop who was like throwing his weight around and beating up people, if he was more of an action hero cop, then this would be a totally different movie, like a much more generic movie. Right. Right. But it's like that psychological element of it. And then like the dimension on top of that, where like when he goes to, oh, I just want to like pour one out for the Pacific dining car on six where they have that scene with the three wise men which is now closed. It did not survive COVID and it makes me so sad. Uh, I loved that place. I love their baseball steak. I love their tea time. I'm just, I need to honor this in my heart for a second, if you don't mind. Please. <gasps> oh, I miss you Pacific dining car. Um, but when he has that scene in there, you see a little bit of reversal because he walks in. There are these three powerful guys sitting at the booth, you know, the DA, like lead investigator. They're all really tough. And he suddenly doesn't have the power. He acts almost like Ethan Hawke in that scene. Right. He's trying to please them. He's trying to, you know, 
laugh at their jokes. Like I love that scene early on when they're at um, Roger's house and he tells that joke about the snail and Ethan Hawke is like, huh? And he right. laughs. Hey, <clears throat> here's a joke, boy. Man walks out of his house on his way to work, sees this snail lying on his porch. So he picks it up, chucks it over the roof into the backyard. Snail bounces off a rock, busts its shell up all the shit, lands in the grass. Hmm? Snail lies there, dying. But <clears throat> snail doesn't die. And after a while, it can crawl again. And one day, snail up and heads back to the front of the house. And finally, after oh, about a year, the little guy crawls back on the porch. Right then, the man walks out of his house on his way to work. He sees this snail again. So he looks at it and he says, The fuck's your problem? <laughs> That's not funny. That's not funny. <laughs> what you laughing for then if it ain't funny? I don't know, man. I... Hey, hey. You figure that joke out, you figure the streets out. But then you get like a, a parallel to that with Alonzo and the wise men when they're talking about the guy and the peanut butter and his underwear and how he gets off and blah, 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 blah. He's trying, he's the one now trying to fit in with these guys. So before the hearing, guy gets hold of some peanut butter, packs his ass crack with it. What? And he's standing tall before the bench and he's waiting to give a statement. So he shoves his hand down his pants, comes out with a gob of extra chunky jiff. Bailiffs won't come near him. <laughs> now, he's, now he's looking the judge right in the eyes. He licks his fingers clean. <laughs> so the judge says, uh, oh, this poor man's insane. He can't go to prison. Orders him to psychiatric. She fell for it. Yeah, that's because she's so fucking smart. Yeah. The time she found out it was sandwich spread, the order was signed, the guy's been transferred. <laughs> Proceedings closed. Yeah, closed. That <laughs> sprinkled six months in the puzzle factory, then they'll call him normal and let him loose. Never ever do a day in prison. Yeah, give him credit, though. Shit, he worked the system. Deserves his freedom. Yeah, think so? Or not. And I like that. I like seeing that moment of weakness from him. You know, and also that moment of kind of like, you've been focusing all your attention on this as the big bad. The big bad is much bigger and it is a hydra and it is multi-headed and it will be much harder to bring down. Right. And I think that there's always this idea that there is someone more powerful. Everyone has to pay the piper. The piper is above them. Like everyone is working underneath someone and trying to work to the highest level they can get where they have all the power. Yeah. And I think to kind of bring back a thing you said, I think that is what this movie comes about with the casting of Denzel. Like if it was Bruce Willis in this movie, you would think it was a movie about racism and anger, you know, which are powerful things to make a movie about. But when it's Denzel, I think it becomes clear that it's a movie about power and control. And not just right. like one guy's personal anger, but a whole system of power and control. Well, I want to go back to that story about the snail, right? Um, so in my mind, 
what's interesting is it's played off like, oh, he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. That's bullshit. But I do think there is something really interesting about that story because I was thinking about it. And, you know, I, I think it's about the choices that we make in life. Do you take the easy way or the hard way, right? And it's sort of like the snail takes the hard way. And the and the man who kicks the snail is like, why? Like, that's, like that's what you're up against. You're always going to be up against someone going, why are you making it hard on yourself? Just do it the e-, like no one will know no one will know like and it, like that's and that's like they say the secret to the streets it's like you can do it the easy way or you could do it the hard way and get the shit kicked out of you at all times and that, i think that that's kind of, you know whether that is physically whether that is i mean in this movie it's physically it's emotionally it it's you know it's like this idea that the hard way everyone is working the easy way why go against the stream? And I think that that's, you know, uh, in any sort of an organization, it's a hard thing. Whether people come forward to say anything, it's the harder path. And you have to all of a sudden have to prove yourself. And it's like, why? Why would you do this? Why would you wreck the thing? Why would you wreck the thing that we all agreed to? And it's this unspoken rules of, and then that's just, that's not police. That's every profession. You know, why are you saying this about that person? Just take the money, do the thing. And I think that that is, you know, I think they, they kind of, wash it off but um well yeah because i mean one thing that is not resolved in this movie is if ethan hawk if we're saying he took the hard way you know he tried to bring it down the bad guy he tried to restore some sort of integrity he did all this work he gets beaten up all day i do really enjoy their like last uh battle scenes when they're um fighting through the rooftop that's just like really good action i feel like yeah. Pushing him around, grabbing whatever's handy. We grabbing love the metal a movie tip. where people are jumping on roofs. I mean, they're, every love action it. movie, I'm like, I was watching that laughing too. I was like, man, this is a thing. We got to jump from rooftop to rooftop. That's why I love that Ethan Hawke actually does not make the full jump there. No, for sure. For sure. For sure. And I like that they're running into wind chimes. Like that feels really real to me. Yeah. Um, but what we don't know is what happens to Ethan the next day. Like, are the other cops who are underneath Denzel, those, you know, Dr. Dre and those guys, are they going to frame him? Are they going to bring him down? Are they going to get revenge? Are the three wise men going to, like, fuck with his career because he knows too much? We don't know if stuff is going to be okay well, for Ethan. Well, I, I mean, I think there's a couple of things at play here. First of all, when you lose Alonzo, it helps a lot of people. I mean, that's why Ethan Hawke is able to leave in that moment. That's why no one gets, you know, no one really gets Alonzo's back when he is when they're having that like street confrontation, like when uh, Ethan Hawke is about to arrest him because he's fucked over enough people that it's like, okay, well, look, another snake may rear its head, but we'll see. But I, I think the thing... By the way, one small thing about the man in that scene mm-hmm. holding the gun, you know, the one who seems like the biggest Oh, yes, this is great, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's the consultant that they hired to be the gang consultant for the film to get the neighborhood right. Um, that's Clay Shahid Sloan. And that man was in the car that was um, totaled on order of Suge Knight. Remember when Suge Knight like oh, had somebody yeah. crash into a car to try to like clean up some testimony yeah. that was going to happen against him? Uh, he was in that car. The other passenger died and he survived. Suge oh. Knight's name is all over this period of history and a lot of the people in the history of this movie. The inspiration and the outcomes. Well, let me bring up something that I, again... I think there's a lot of luck in this movie. 
And I don't need to break down why I think there's a lot of luck. More to say that I think you have two great actors who are going toe-to-toe with each other, doing great two-person scenes, and then you fill that in with some amazing side performances of a a bunch of other great actors who are really, like, handling it. But I think, going back to the script and what this script was, the ending is a little fakakta, I'll say, in the sense that it's, you know, the original script fucked up the whole ending. Like, first of all, like, Alonzo is going to get away with all this stuff. Darker ending, right? That's a Denzel move. Denzel's like, no, he's got to make amends. Yeah, he almost, Denzel almost went like classic Hollywood production code with it, where it's like, the villain must be punished. The villain does not win. And and that's why I think you get these three weird beats at the end, right? And I, I want to break that down in a second. But I just want to go into what they were originally going to do. Then you have this original ending of the script where... Uh, Ethan Hawke comes in to find, uh, you know, Alonzo, like that scene at the end, right? When he walks in that door, what does he see? His training officer that he talked about in the first scene in the diner, having a three-way with two young women, right? And then frames, then Denzel Washington frames Ethan Hawke and then kills himself, like, crazy ending right so it's also like whoa okay all right and basically saying now your your debt is my debt you know uh you know so that's like another weird ending um it's interesting because i i feel like you want the gang to take alonzo down right because that's where it's kind of building to it's like ethan hawk you go home get out of here you didn't see this we're gonna handle this now and then when you cut to that next scene when he's driving in the Monte Carlo again, you're like, huh? Right? And then the Russians take him down. So I'm like, what happened? That to me is one of the most interesting like cut twos in the entire movie. I'm like, wait a second. So they just let him walk and his car is back to normal-ish and... And like it's like then he gets more gunned down and you know because he's almost unkillable. I mean he really is. I mean and even though you're seeing him break the way he's smoking that cigarette, he gets shot in the ass. The way he plays that moment, getting shot in the ass is like it's great. But he is already beaten down, and, and you feel like. But he seems to think he's unkillable. He's still right. like you can't. He's like you can shoot me, but you can't kill me. He's and, yeah. He's almost like a monster. Even when the Russians are like mowing him down, he climbs to his feet. So that he can, like, die all, on his feet. Yeah. yeah. That's like a Jimmy Cagney ending. That is like, no, you will. I will not ever be a victim, even when you shoot me. And I like that. And I guess I guess where I felt the movie should have ended was, like, who cares about the Russians getting their justice? Like, I don't give a fuck about that. I think the street, you know, the street. But I think the street should be getting their justice on this guy because it's sort of like, he lived in this world where he's constantly taking advantage of, you know, putting somebody in a wheelchair, you know, uh, stealing money, doing all this. Sort of like he, for all the allies he has, he also is betraying all those allies at a moment's notice, right? Like that's what his MO is, is I am fucking like you are only as good to me as I need you to be until I will fuck you over the next time. And to me, the movie builds to the end where it's like, you want to live by street rules or street justice, you're going to die by street justice. And the Russians isn't street justice. That's like revenge for a fucking act that he made in Vegas where he beat some guy up. Like, yeah, out whatever. of his town, out of his jurisdiction. That we out don't of, know. Out and of have, where he's been bad. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I don't know 
I think it does two things weirdly, which is it's a darker ending to be like, and what happened to him? We don't know. He fucking disappeared. Like, you know, that kind of like, whoa, we don't know. It's like, like, you know, and, but I think the movie almost overdid it. I don't know. Do you feel that way? I just. Well, it it feels like a clash of two points and it wasn't sure which one to make. Yeah. Like it wants to make the point. That as much as Alonzo goes about telling the street that they're like this and they're violent and this is street justice, that maybe good people are better than he gives them credit for. Like maybe right. maybe well, his whole view towards the world is actually off anyways, as much as he positions himself right. as the expert. But, but it, it feels like they also want a little bit of that, you know, like the end of, of, of Night of the Hunter. They're like, there's they're not going to let them lynch the monster. Like they're not going to let a lynching happen because then everybody is culpable. It's like they want all the villainy to stay inside the villain. Well, I, I but agree it does with also you. Yeah. Feel like unsatisfying in that way of like, these are the people that he has wronged and wronged for a very long time. And right. It's like, it's, it's there. Like he is getting his own just, you know, like he's getting, he's a, and I know what you're saying, cause I do feel that way too. It's like, well, what, just cause they're a gang, they have to kill him. Like, and then they make them bad too. But it's like, but it's not just out of the blue. It's not like, oh, he traveled into a wrong neighborhood and he gets killed. It's like, no, no, this is like for everything that he, like, look, he's, this is a guy who set Ethan Hawke up to get killed. And luckily he had the girl's wallet. And then, you know, that's a great scene too. It's like, yeah, I appreciate that everybody in that scene is like, this This doesn't make sense. It's weird that this is happening as well. Because it's like yeah. such a contrivance that like, I like that at least they're letting the guys be like, this is fucked up that you have this wallet. Like, yeah. This, this is just too contrived. We even agree. And it's interesting, too, because when they do talk to the girl who was being raped by the two crackheads, the way that she plays off her day is like, oh, yeah, well, that's just, you know, I was almost raped today. Yeah. You know, it was, it was she doesn't seem to be too... To like you know, it's, like, it's a, well. I feel like she's just worried about getting in trouble, right? And then uh, for a while, and then and I then, will. Say, yeah. I, I will say this: I am a fan of this movie, a very big fan of this movie. I think that Anton Fuqua does not have the. He has big, beautiful flourishes. It looks great, but he can't kind of dig into these little finer areas that are a little bit more, um, just they need a little bit more nuance. And I think that there's a, and because of that, we get these like kind of more sweeping generalizations, these more sweeping points of view. And and I think that's why there is there are some confusing moments here. There are some things. And that I think is like, well, what perspective are we telling this through? And I think that the actors really raise up the movie and it becomes much more of a character thing, but you're doing a movie about cops in Los Angeles, the home of notorious police brutality for decades, current police brutality. Like at the time that this movie is coming out, you are doing a story about gangs. You're doing a story about a a black cop and a white cop. There's a lot of this nuance that is not in this movie that I think you could add without it being heavy. I love end of watch. It's a different kind of a movie, but I also think it deals about different themes also in LA and uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal. I really love that movie a lot. That's Uh, a really fun movie. Actually, it's Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena. Michael Pena, that's right. And, you know, anyway, I just I just think that there's some nuance missed in this movie that would, that I think could actually even make it a little bit more uh, powerful. 
And that's that my that's my takeaway from the movie. You know, my takeaway from the villain is 100% this may be one of Denzel Washington's best performances. I, I think it's in the pocket. It's great. But the movie, I think, misses out on some nuance. What are we trying to say? Like, you can't make a movie set in L.A. in this world, in a gang culture, in all these things, and not even make a clear delineation of what you're trying to say there, too. Because what what did he say to get out of there? Why would they let him out of there? Like, I mean, are they letting him out of there just to be killed by the Russians? Okay, fine. Is he trying to pay the Russians or he's trying to leave town? People are like, oh, he's trying to leave town. He's going to LAX. But we don't know that. Like, what, is he leaving town, but he's bleeding? He's, you know, it's like there's, there's a lot happening in that moment. And when you see him, like, pulling up at that stop, like, I don't get the sense of urgency from him. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't think you're wrong. But I also think... That if I'm trying to put myself in Fuqua's shoes, I think what he was after was trying to say, even when this movie ends, the problem is going on. And I, it is not in my heart to resolve it because I don't believe it. it, it is resolved. Right. You can't walk away and say like, and now all the problems, like, you can't, 100%, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. And, and I think that's why, to me, my favorite element of the ending is just when you hear that news report that... The police department has already put a spin on Alonzo, and they're mm-hmm. making him a hero. A Los Angeles Police Department narcotics officer was killed today, serving a high-risk warrant near LAX. An LAPD spokesperson said Officer Alonzo Harris was survived by his wife and four Seen sons. By medical personnel, a highly decorated officer, a 13-year LAPD veteran. That, to me, is the chilling part, because it means, like, the truth will never be out there. Citizens will still be paying tons of money to the police department and not questioning anything and not tearing it down and not trying to like root out cops like Alonzo that they're still just going to cover up for him towards the end. And that to me feels like the realistic mood that Fuqua wants to say is that he's kind of caught between like the audience wants to see Denzel go down though, right? Don't they? And Denzel wants to see Denzel go down. Do we or do we not kill Glenn Close, you know? Right. And I think that like Antoine Fuqua Obviously, you know, he and Denzel Washington have a good relationship. They've worked together multiple times. And that, you know, so I think that speaks to his quality as a director. But I also think that maybe this movie is an action movie that is elevated by great performances, the looseness in the improvisation, what these two actors bring to it that make it feel like it should be leveling up to a more elevated point of view because another movie that I love that Fuqua did uh, and you know I, I could talk about this movie you know all the time is, is Olympus it the Equalizer? Is oh, oh I no. thought you were going to say The Equalizer. Oh no no. <laughs> Olympus Has Fallen. I, I think Olympus Has Fallen is, is one of the fun like one of the most fun films that has come out in recent memory because it's like a fucking cool action. I mean it's 2013 but it's an action movie. Gerard Butler uh, Aaron Eckhart and uh, Morgan Freeman and it's just like a brutal fun it came out the same year as like the white house is down and i love it anyway all that to say is that's a straight up action movie i'm not looking for anything about geopolitics or i don't give a shit uh i just want to see somebody get their throat ripped which happens um and i think that you know this is an interesting point of view when you have really great actors bring a lot to this role making sure they make these choices oh the original script had you know hoyt not paying any penalty for it like not being challenged by it 
this probably would work and would have been great with, you know, Bruce Willis and uh, an Eminem, you know, or, or you know, or uh, Tom Sizemore and Matt Damon. Like, it would have been great and it would have been fun and it would have been this action movie. But these actors make you lean in so much on these dialogue scenes. It's a much more philosophical film. It's a much more about, like, what are we trying to look at here? It's like, what do, whose side are we on? And I think you go back and forth because of the charisma and, and the and the uh, beliefs of these two characters, because we really get to see these points of view. So that, I think that's maybe what I'm, what I'm feeling is like, no, I, I like, I, yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. And actually I want to say my, one of my favorite performances in here is an actress who every time she shows up, I get really excited. And that's Macy Gray. Oh yeah. She's fucking great. She's so good. Macy Gray is always the best thing in pretty much every movie she shows up in. She's really good in For Colored Girls. She's really good in The Paperboy. Uh, and this being her first movie, you know, when she shows up here as like the wife of the Sandman who just like goes all in on hazing Ethan Hawke in the scene. I want to see that warrant. I what? I want to see the warrant. You, you're supposed to give me a copy. Yeah, well, my partner has it. He'll be out within a sec. What the fuck's your backup? Ma'am. Do me a favor and just be quiet until we're through with our investigation. Well, you got the gun, don't you, boss? That's right, I do. Punk-ass, bitch-ass, crooked-ass cop. Okay. You a rookie. Give me a break, okay? I found an interview with her where she talks about, like, why she decided to act for the first time and how she was kind of reluctant and what changed her mind. Now, a lot of people don't know, but your film debut was in the Denzel Washington blockbuster Training Day, and that was 20 years ago. So what do you remember most about that experience? Um, I remember uh, as soon as I got there, I just wanted, because the only reason I did that movie, because I, I was not an actress, you know, and I thought he was crazy, Antoine Fuqua, for asking me to do that movie. And I was like, you know, whatever, dude. And then, then he said, you know, by the way, Denzel Washington is in it. And then that's when I was like, Oh my God, you know? And that's when I signed up for the movie because I wanted to get a picture of, with him for my mom. That was really my entire inspiration for doing that movie. I had no interest in acting. Amazing. Look, I want to meet Denzel Washington. I wouldn't say a goddamn word, though. I, I will say this, too. Antoine Fuqua, at this point, he made Bait, which is a Jamie Foxx movie, which is super fun, too, or at least I remember it being fun. Um, and... And his career before that is making a lot of music videos, like with some of the biggest hip hop stars. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like the last music video he did that was kind of the one he was like, I have done it. I have ascended to the throne of music videos. I am now ready for my features. The Gangsta's Paradise. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Because I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. Amazing. And and I think what I love about this movie is not only are you getting some of the best L.A. tough guys, right? Like, I've seen a lot of these faces. I've worked with a lot of these people. Uh, one of them, I actually, we were the two kitchen people at uh, Fresh Off the Boat, Noel, who plays uh, one of the guys playing poker with Ethan Hawke at the end. Uh, but... These amazing faces, these tough guys, Terry Crews, right? Terry Crews, like almost in the background, as like an extra in this movie. Uh, oh my god, have you heard Terry Crews say that he's, he was worried he was going to ruin this movie? Oh no! Oh yeah, you have to hear this. This is really funny. Well, you know, I had I had a friend who worked on the set, uh -huh. and he was like, "Hey man, look, come down. We got Denzel. We're in the jungle with all these gang members and the whole thing." And Antoine Fuqua, Antoine Fuqua came up to me and said, "Hey man, 
He saw me just standing there watching. He said, you want to be in this movie? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll be in the movie. I'll be in Then he said, take your shirt off and go up to the roof. And I'm the guy with the pigeons and the whole thing and, and training day. And then he said, just come back every day and I'll put you around. So I came back for a whole week straight and I ended up in the most iconic scene of all time when Denzel is yelling, King Kong ain't gonna have nothing. Yeah. I'm staring him down in that whole scene. All, and my mother flipped. She's like, you're, on the, you're in the Oscars, you're at the Oscars. I'm like, no, I'm not at the Oscars. <laughs> They're playing the clip. Oh, they showed they that They were showing the clip. clip, and everybody was like, that's Jerry Crew. Now, this is the thing. I ruined training day for everybody. Because I was supposed to be this mad gangster. And everything. That, that, that's Terry Crews. Yeah, now That's the guy from White Chips. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're like, that's Chris Rock's father. You know what I mean? <laughs> How can he beat up Denzel? How is this going to happen? And then, and then you get these, like, these this music stars. You get Dr. Dre in a movie, right? You get, like, Snoop Dogg. And yeah. I think Snoop Dogg, also an underrated actor, always brings it. I, I love his role in this. Macy Gray, like you said. And then on top of that, so you get, okay. You got the tough guys. You got this. And then these character actors that he's pulling out. I mean, Tom Berenger, small part, great. Scott Glenn, great. Harris Eulin, who I love. Cliff Curtis. So I'm saying it's like, and then and and then you also get like, you know, uh, like Eva Mendez. So, you know, it's like it really is wall to wall one of the best cast films. It is fun as hell to watch all these people because they're all just perfect they're just again everyone's kind of in the pocket in a way like it's beautifully cast really good and i do think you know you're you talked about macy gray saying the reason why she did it is because her mom wanted to meet denzel and uh i think when you work with him and you're working with a lot of actors that are oh my gosh that's denzel washington they are going to step up their game everyone steps up their game it is truly it's just great. It's just great to watch. It's great. And look, these are, you know, a lot of the extras in that scene in Baldwin, uh, was it in the uh, the Baldwin Village? You know, those are real gang members, you know, and that's and 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 that's what happened. You know, like they were they that this movie feels like L.A. Very few movies sometimes feel like L.A. And I feel it like it really this, you, feels like L.A. Really this is one of those movies like where if you live in L.A., you're like, I know that intersection. Yep. I know that intersection. I know that sunlight. Yeah. I know the way that shade hits. You know, when this came out, like all the profiles of David Ayer were like, a guy who knows L.A., a guy who knows L.A. And like he really was kind of positioning himself as like, I'm the screenwriter that really knows these streets, you know, um, which I think that act has gotten to me personally a little bit musty over the decades. But it does have that really authentic feel. I love hearing, you know, Foucault talk about the authenticity that he insisted on putting into this film. There's no other way to tell the story unless you understand the world they're in. I wanted the whole crew to get in the environment, see the people, to see what the movie's about, to feel the texture of the world. Where we're going, I'm telling you, no cameras have been in Imperial Courts the way we were. And in the jungle, they have a policy of no cameras, totally. Take a beat before you pull the gun out. The gang members are the guys that gave me permission to come into their neighborhoods. They were so supportive. And I wanted them to be in the movie. These guys got real scars, real bullet holes. They deal with these cops every day. You know, Antoine himself, like, he has talked about, you know, being shot at when he was, like, 14, 15, um, and then finding out his own life through art. Like, one of his real turning points was when um, somebody showed him the paintings of Caravaggio, and he was like, I love this. And becoming a guy who, like, grew up in a tough neighborhood, only considered his strength to be an athlete for a really long time, fell in love with art, 
and then like figured out how to be a storyteller in Hollywood, you know, like really worked his way up. And I love that this is kind of the film that leveled him up. Like he says that, you know, he had made movies before, but he called Training Day his first film. The first time he felt like he made a movie that reflected the kind of stuff he felt like he could be doing. And it is also interesting, though, because like I went and I read the press notes of this movie. And, you know, you can tell that they wrote the press notes of the film right before September 11th, because some mm. of the things that Fuqua is saying in there, he's like, you know, our generation doesn't have a Vietnam and we don't have any external wars, but the war that we're fighting is within. It's within the very heart and core of America. And I was like, oh, man. Right. Our generation will have its Vietnam by the time your soon film enough, comes out, bro. Soon enough. It is really tough. And then Ayer was like immediately, like when the film came out, by the time it came out, was giving quotes like, I wish we had a whole division of Alonzos to send overseas. We don't need them on the streets of LA where cops think they're, so they're stormtroopers. But in Afghanistan, that kind of attitude would come in handy. I'm like, oh man, right. 2001 was a trip. I'm, I'm, ugh, oh man. And you know, it's interesting that this movie becomes such a cultural touchstone at the time when it comes out because, I mean, look, I, I have such a warped perspective of 9-11 in the sense of I was living in New York at the time and uh, and I think it was like, oh my gosh, are people seeing movies? And I do think probably people were seeing more movies. Like it was such a big deal to go back to the movies. Like at that point, I remember, you know, it was like, oh, okay. Like it just didn't feel like anything was normal, but this movie does come out in a very interesting moment. Um, and yet is successful, right? I mean, it's successful. It, it, it does, it kind of checks every box. It's successful. It's a, it is award worthy. And maybe that's what I'm going for is the alchemy of this, whether it is Antoine Fuqua bringing his knowledge of the world and the city and, and his relationships and his casting eye and his work with Denzel to put it all together and, you know, getting Ethan Hawke and, and making those choices like this, this whole thing elevates. This could have been something different. And it goes from a action movie that was probably just slated for a, you know, Denzel had done so many of these Crimson Tides action movie, you know, whatever, or like, like, you know, like these, like the Tony Scott, Denzel Washington, Man on Fire, stuff like that. Right. And, um, and it elevates, it just becomes an Academy Award. It, it, it it's rare when you get these movies that cross over. I always love that. I love a crossover movie. Like this was not, I don't think, intended to be an Academy Award movie, but then it did. And I love when it's like, yeah. oh, people know what this movie is. People are like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, I love Training Day. I want to see Denzel Washington win this award. You yeah, know, it's Hawkins like said like day three of making this movie, he knew that Denzel was going to get a nomination. Okay, got I it. I will say one of the things that I'm like, man, Academy and nominations. Like Denzel was nominated for leading performer and uh, Ethan Hawke was nominated for supporting. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Ethan Hawke is the lead and Denzel is the supporting. But that's the kind of banana stuff. That, that is pulled. like just a total thing that makes no sense whatsoever. Like that, that, that is all about how they can spend more money in. I mean, it's such a fucking weird yeah. business. It's, it's probably all just because like Denzel already won supporting. We want him to win best, like best lead. But yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, did everyone love this movie as well as we did? Uh, it got good reviews. What's interesting is it got sort of, I would say, like A minus reviews. Okay. I didn't see a ton of raves, but I saw a lot of pretty good, you know, pretty good. A lot of B plus A minus reviews. Uh, some of the strongest criticisms came from uh, one of the first critics that I just read all the time, Elvis Mitchell from The New York Times. 
And I will say part of that tenor of these reviews is probably because people weren't yet totally thinking of it as an Oscar movie. You know, they were sort of getting their bearings and talking a lot about the performances, but not taking it that seriously, treating it like it was just a good thriller instead of like a serious film. Uh, So Elvis Mitchell wrote, after the first hour, Training Day loses much of its ability to shock. That's because despite the novelty of Alonzo's middle-aged lust and Jake's mature adolescence, the layering of coincidences that have to pay off start coming into view. It will be interesting to see Jake react to Alonzo's wanton mistreatment of people of color on the streets, which translates into a new up-to-the-minute definition of black-on-black crime. Training Day, with its ninth circle of hell bad cop conspiracy, owes us a lot more, especially in the light of the wholesale corruption in the Los Angeles Police Department that we've seen in the news. But eventually, Training Day just becomes a glib potboiler torn from today's screaming hot headlines. Hmm. Yeah, I think that they talk a little bit about what we talked about there. I, I think it's a little bit harsh on it because of that. It's like, I think it's a, I think you have to look at this movie like almost like a, a Rubik's Cube in the middle of being solved. It, 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 there are peaks and valleys to it. It's not like, it's not a fully smooth film. And maybe to your point, it wasn't supposed to be. Um, and I think that that maybe is, you know, I don't want to tell that story. I want to tell this story and this is it. And it's tricky. It's yeah. a tricky. It's a tricky movie to make whenever you're showing police brutality and you want to kind of, and I think this movie does make you align with uh, Denzel at certain points. And I think it does pull you into Ethan Hawke. I don't think you ever feel what you want to be Ethan Hawke. I, I think you understand why it's so hard to be Ethan Hawke. Um, and it's like, well, just let him at this point, just let him pay the Russians. Like, who cares? Like, who cares? But it's like, you know, it's a tricky movie. And because and, there's bigger themes in here too. Like I said, I think... This movie would be very different if it was Bruce Willis at the front of it. I think it would be a, a straight up. We've seen that movie. We've seen those. It's just not as interesting. This is a much more of a, uh, you know, much more of a psychological. You know, it's like he believes his own bullshit. He and does. He's also super he smart. does. I mean, like Ayer was saying, even as he wrote this character, you know, there were times when I thought he was the greatest person in the world. And other times when I was furious with myself for writing the words that he speaks. But the one thing I knew for sure is that Alonzo himself believes that he is right. He does not see himself as evil. In his own heart, he has decided that he what he is doing is best for everybody. And that's what I kind of like about doing this film back to back with Night of the Hunter. You mm-hmm. know, is like both of those characters believe that what they're doing is right. You know, like that right. that Robert Mitchum believes that God is telling him to get that money you know, and kill if he has to. And that Alonzo believes that this is what justice should be, but they go about it in such different ways that I think they're so interesting to kind of do back to back. You know, that that Night of the Hunter is this really kind of like eerie, almost supernatural feeling, heightened tone, expressionistic movie that's clearly about good and evil, you know, love and hate on the, on the knuckles. And this movie is all about the gray. It only wants to be about the gray. This movie is about why gray exists. And so it's looking at good and evil from just this middle, muddled, dark, complicated perspective. Actually, I think their tattoos really represent it well. You know, love and hate, very clear. Mm. But if you look at the tattoo that Alonzo has, it's it says death is certain, life is not. It's all about the gray. It's all about how being in life is is vague. You know, and and I think that does capture this movie. Also, I think another thing that you see putting these two films back to back is that one thing a villain really has to do is they have to sing a creepy song when they're getting close to you. 
Where you at, Jake? Come on out, dog. Oh, where, oh, where has my little Jake gone? Oh, where, oh, where can he be? So, villains, gotta sing. Gotta sing. Gotta dance. Gotta dance or sing. Maybe do magic. And speaking (laughs) of a villain who can sing and dance, I think it's time for us to revisit James Cagney in one of the most influential uh, bad guy roles. Uh, That is White Heat. Oh, I'm excited to do White Heat. You know, I will say this came up even researching this episode because Washington points over and over again to Jimmy Cagney as an influence. So, ah, this will be really fun. It's available wherever you get your uh, films, but take a listen to a little bit of the trailer. You won't get away with the Cody. Cody, huh? You got a good memory for names. Too good. What do you like that, boys? A cop. And I was going to split 50-50 with a cop. <laughs> <laughs> Now tell me you're glad to see me. Only say hello. All I wanted was for you to come back. That's the truth. I love you, Cody. I love you. I look good in a mink coat, honey. Mm-hmm. You look good in a shower curtain. It was Big Ed. He told me to do it. You wouldn't kill me in cold blood, would you? Now let you warm up a little. Let him have it. Oh, no. And lose our race in the hole? He's going to walk us out of here. Ain't you, copper? Also, I got to say, for people who are about to watch White Heat for the first time, you will realize what a touchstone this movie is in so many ways. Oh, well, that oh, will be me. It will put it will put so many crazy villains you've seen on screen into perspective. You'll be like, oh, I get it. I get where that was coming from. Ooh, I can't wait. All right. Well, uh, like I said, it is available wherever you get your streaming films. A, a big thank you to our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our MVP, Molly Reynolds. And uh, we are saying goodbye this week to our intern, uh, Jacob Morton. Jacob it served us well in the time he was with us. Uh, so quick, uh, but so great. So thank you, Jacob. And our engineer, Ryan Connor. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see you next week for... White Heat as Villains continues. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 